Episode 2, Case White. Late August, 1939. Europe stands on the edge of war. For years, the Third Reich has devoured country after country, while the West has stood idly by, dreaming of peace. They had let Hitler reoccupy the Rhineland without any resistance, ceded to him Austria with barely a protest, and in an attempt to appease him even allowed him to consume the sovereign nation of Czechoslovakia with little more than a stern word. But that dream of peace is about to be shattered, and what will follow will be a nightmare that will consume the world. Welcome to The Finest Half Hour, read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous help of Wargaming. Each week we'll bring you a small part of the story of the greatest conflict of the modern age, the Second World War, the war that shaped our world. It is a story of bravery, but also of great human darkness. It is a story of sacrifice and struggle, but also of slaughter and the casual destruction of life on a level not seen before or since. It is not a black and white story. The heroes are not all good, and some only seem heroes when set against the cancerous evil that spread across the globe. But it is the clearest war story of the modern age in one way. It truly was a war to determine the fate of the world. It is a story of the struggle to keep the pale light of liberty from being extinguished by the hand of barbaric dictatorships, of the fight to liberate the oppressed and to defend the persecuted, of those who fought so that we might live in the world we live in today. But as much as this is a story about war and valour, for many people living at the time it was a story about torture, starvation and slavery, about true horror and privation that it's hard to imagine today. We will try to tell all those stories, not as some whitewashed glorious crusade, nor as a series of sanitised names and dates, but, as much as we are able, an unvised account of the greatest struggle in human history. So let's begin. August 31st, 1939. A band of men creep into a radio station on the German-Polish frontier. They burst into the control room and shout for all the personnel to leave. One seizes the microphone. In Polish, he gives a speech about how it is time for Poles in Germany to rise up and rejoin Poland. When he's done, someone says derisively that they should get the canned goods. An unconscious man is dragged in. Yesterday he was a German farmer. Today he is dressed in Polish clothes. His breathing is laboured. He's been drugged. Injected by a German doctor with something to keep him unconscious to keep him from screaming. His only crime was sympathy for the Poles, but he was convenient. The SS had swept him up and brought him here. Now he's unconscious, on the floor of the building he'll never know, to die for reasons he'll never understand. One of the men draws his pistol. He fires, then fires again, until the man's chest stops moving. Then, with workmanlike precision, they disfigure his face so that it can't be recognised. The next day, that man, and a dozen others like him, taken from the concentration camp at Dachau, will be found by local police all along the border. They will have Polish papers in their pockets. Hitler will use this claim that the Poles attacked Germany, that the remains were members of raiding parties killed by patriotic Germans defending the Reich. This will be his pretext to order the invasion of Poland and embark upon a campaign that will send Europe plunging headlong into war. 
September the 1st, 1939. Dawn breaks over the Polish plain. The roar of Panzer engines shatters the pre-dawn silence. Great steel beasts roll forward, churning up the earth. A few rifle shots from surprised border guards and poorly armed Polish volunteers ricochet off their thick hides before the shooters are scattered by the force of the advance. Nazi troops seize two small villages and raise them to the ground, herding the inhabitants towards the Polish army, waiting, dug in ahead. Artillery rains down, great gouts of earth fly into the air. Luftwaffe planes drop bomb after bomb on the town the Polish soldiers are sheltering in. Then the panzers charge. But the artillery has missed the Polish anti-tank guns. The Germans are pushed back. But they mass. Again they charge. Again they are repulsed, though this time by the great shells of a Polish armoured train. But it does not end. Again and again and again, the Wehrmacht throws itself forward, grinding the Poles, inch by inch, life by life, out of their defences. Soon the Polish defenders are forced to withdraw, and withdrawal will, in many places, soon become retreat. That first day of assault, Nazi forces met with stubborn Polish defence, but it was a lost cause. The Polish defence was hamstrung from the outset. First, there was a lack of mobilisation. The French, hoping for some negotiated settlement with Hitler, had convinced the Polish government not to mobilise the army, so nearly a third of its manpower was out of position or undersupplied when the Reich attacked. What force did make it to the front was woefully underarmed. While the Poles deployed almost as many men as the German invaders, they had only 750 armoured vehicles, compared to the 3,600 the Germans could field, half as many planes and nowhere near the strength in artillery. This was all compounded by the fact that most of the Polish armaments were obsolete. Polish fighter planes didn't have the airspeed to catch German bombers, much less engage on an even footing with the main German fighter plane, the Bf 109. And while they had a tank that was superior to the German Panzer Ones and Twos, only 140 of them were produced. Nearly the entire rest of the complement of the Polish army was tankettes, sporting little more than a machine gun and wholly incapable of fighting even the oldest German tanks. But perhaps even more than insufficient armaments, the early days of the Polish defence were hamstrung by an accident of geography and politics. When Poland rose from the ashes of the First World War, made a state again by the victorious powers in 1919, nearly all of its industrial capacity and economic strength lay in the West, in the territory carved out by the old German Empire. This meant that they faced an impossible problem. They could either withdraw to the much more defensible interior of the country and abandon the majority of their population and the production facilities that they needed to sustain the war, or, rather than practice defences in depth and concentrate their forces in easily defendable areas in the south and east, spread out to defend all 900 miles of their western border. They chose the latter. And nowhere could they truly create the type of defence that might have had a chance of slowing the German war machine. September the 2nd, 1934. A soldier moans pitifully. He fades in and out of consciousness. Two women carry him on the back of a ladder. There is no stretchers to be found. They stop, calling out to a ragged band of Polish soldiers marching the other way. 
They ask how far they are from the field hospital. One responds laconically, it's just been overrun. The German attack spread out like an eagle's claw, one talon coming in from the north, one from the west, and one from the south to close around the city of Warsaw. Everywhere, Polish defences fell apart. Despite heroic stands by a number of Polish units, the army is forced back. The plan is to regroup west of the Vistula, the great river that divides Warsaw, and defend the capital, but already communication has started to break down. There is one great hope, though. The Western Allies have declared war on Germany. France and Great Britain have made good on their alliance with Poland and now threaten Hitler's flank. If the French can push into Germany from the west, at the very least troops will have to be diverted, and, with luck, they might even force the Germans to the negotiating table. Or, as so many hoped, spark a coup in Germany that would topple Hitler's militarist madness. Unfortunately, this turned out to be a vain hope. French forces mobilised lethargically, still using First World War doctrines to fight a modern war. Eventually, hesitantly, their forces crept into Germany, often stopping less than three miles over the German border. And while celebrations occurred in Warsaw, with God Save the Queen being played outside the British Embassy and the Marseillaise being sung by a chorus of Polish citizens beneath the windows of the French consulate, the decision had already been made that Allied forces would do no more than probe the first German defensive line. By the 12th, the French had given an order that none of their troops were to get closer than a kilometre to German defences. But French generals told their Polish allies they were in contact with the enemy and reported that at least six divisions had been diverted from Poland to defend against French attacks. The reality, of course, was that none were. Not a single division was ever withdrawn from Poland for fear of an Allied offensive. After the war, German Oberkommander de Wehrmacht, Alfred Jodl, would say that the only reason Germany didn't collapse in 1939 was because 110 British and French divisions sat at the border when the Wehrmacht only had 23 divisions to defend against them. And so Poland fought on, waiting for a rescue that would never come. September the 9th, 1939. The child looks like a statue, covered head to toe in fine grey dust. He sits on a pile of broken masonry blinking, otherwise not moving at all. One week ago he had been in school, but his school was bombed to rubble. Six days ago he had been with his parents, but his father got enlisted in the defence. Three days ago he held his mother's hand, but he had lost her in an air raid. So now he sits, with nothing else to do, alone and frightened. When the air raid warning blares, he just stares up at the sky, waiting for someone to show him where to go. Warsaw has been bombed for days. It was the first truly unrestricted air campaign of the war. The Luftwaffe not only targets military installations, but hospitals, schools and water pumps. The idea is to demoralize the population to terrorise them into a weakened defence or an early surrender. Meanwhile, the Panzers drive east, cutting off Polish forces, splitting armies and disrupting communication with the capital. By the third, the tip of the spear, the 4th Panzer Division has already broken through the main line. By the ninth, Polish defensive lines are in chaos. 
centralised command has largely broken down and regional commanders are doing what they can to hold position or get their troops back to a part of the country Polish forces still hold. Unfortunately, that's shrinking day by day. September the 9th, 1939, the Polish Corridor, Northwest Poland. Three horses drag a 75mm artillery piece across the open Polish plain. Around them rides a whole regiment of horsemen of the gallop. They're planning on crossing the muddy waters of the Bazura. They're planning on striking back. Soon, they'll be parts of the first major Polish offensive of the war. With Warsaw nearly surrounded and German forces penetrating hundreds of miles into Polish territory, isolated pockets of Polish resistance are being eliminated one by one. But the Germans have made an oversight. In the northwest, along the Polish corridor, the part of Poland that separated the rest of Germany from East Prussia, they lost track of an army. The Germans thought that the Polish forces that had been bottled up or escaped via train to help the defence of Warsaw, but no such withdrawal had been made. Two full army groups made a fairly orderly retreat eastward and linked up on the muddy waters of the Bazura, a small river 75 miles outside of Warsaw. They were now probably the strongest unified force remaining to the Polish army, with roughly 225,000 men at their disposal. But Germans held every inch of land between them and the capital. And to make matters worse, the Polish commander-in-chief, seeing Warsaw as lost, had moved his headquarters 125 miles further east. They were totally cut off from Polish high command. So one of the Polish commanders on the ground decided on a course of action. They would attack. There was nothing else left to them. There was no way to retreat and no open route to Warsaw. Digging in would just mean eventual encirclement and death. The army decided to attack. So, on the night of the 9th, they struck. They fell on the German 8th Army. Over a thousand Germans ended up in the list of killed or wounded. Thousands more were captured. The Polish commander had rightly assessed the Wehrmacht forces here were totally unprepared for an attack from the north. Most of their strength had already been diverted to join the upcoming siege of Warsaw and what was left was stretching thin. Just enough to pacify an area they didn't think contained major forces. The Germans were thrown back 20 kilometers. Over the next two days, Polish forces pressed the assault until finally the German high command decided to divert massive resources from the siege of Warsaw to deal with this new threat. Two panzer divisions, large parts of the 4th and 10th Army Group, and a large number of planes reversed direction and began heading back west to meet the Polish counteroffensive. By the very next day, advance during daylight was made almost impossible by German bombers. The Polish army had no air support and very little in the way of anti-aircraft guns. By the 14th, advances had stopped entirely. The Poles dug in, preparing for one last desperate attempt at a breakout towards Warsaw but they were surrounded. Bombers flew in day and night. Howitzers placed up on the hills nearby rained down shells upon them. Then the German offensive started. Over 800 tanks assailed the Polish position. The Polish pocket became smaller and smaller. Finally, the breakout was ordered. Polish forces rushed into the teeth of German guns. A few thousand broke through, 
but nearly 170,000 were left behind. For two more days, they presented a tenacious defence, but at last, out of food and out of ammunition, they were forced to surrender. It would be the only major offensive by Polish forces during the invasion. It was a doomed fight against an army better equipped, better supplied and better supported. But the sacrifice of the troops at Bazura was not entirely in vain. It brought the defenders of Warsaw much needed time to prepare. September 15th, 1939. Lieutenant Gislav Pachak stands with his regiment, the children of Lewuf, in the cratered husk of an old factory, awaiting the approach of the Germans. His bugler stands next to him, nervous. His instrument shakes slightly in his hands. There! They see them, dots at first, then getting larger. Tanks, armoured cars, heading up the road in front of them. And, oh God, people. Polish citizens running, fleeing down the road ahead of them. Some scatter, dodging into houses, but others keep running, trying to make it to the safety of the barricade ahead. The German vehicles open fire. Bodies hit the road. The bugler begins to raise his instrument. Lieutenant Pachak puts out a hand, pushes his arm down. He knows they can do nothing but wait and watch in horror. The Germans need to be closer. The vehicles are atop the crowd now. One old woman falls beneath a tank tread. The machines, unthinking, unfeeling as their drivers press forward. Closer, closer. Now, he screams. Artillery crashes all around the German tanks. The German line is thrown into confusion. Anti-tank fire from hidden guns is pummeling it from all sides. Then it happens. The street erupts into flames. They've coated it with dozens of barrels of turpentine they found in the old factory. Tank crews try to escape their stranded vehicles, only to fall into the inferno. He feels no regret. Men, get your bayonets. The last stand begins. By the 15th, everything west of the Vistula had been overrun. The economic heartland of Poland is gone, and most of the major population centres are occupied by Nazi forces. The air force is shattered, the army in full retreat, and the navy has long since sailed for Britain in hopes of joining the British fleet and continuing the fight after Poland falls. But Warsaw still stands. It's surrounded. German forces have crossed the river and can now close in on it from all sides. And only a thin lifeline running through an old Napoleonic fortress to the northwest of the city still allows any contact with the outside world. But the city itself has not surrendered. For over a week, Warsaw has been defended from German assault by the ragged remnants of Polish army groups, students, factory workers and other civilians. Most of the best-equipped forces, and even the police, were evacuated by Polish High Command before encirclement was complete, so that they could be used to create another defensive line further to the east. The small air group defending the city had done so heroically, but by the 7th had already been wiped out almost to a man. Women and children built barricades, dug trenches and, in some cases, picked up rifles and fought. Street by street, house by house, the city was defended, but bombing took its toll. German artillery and aircraft pounded the city continuously, 
Food began to run out, sanitation declined, but they only had to hold out until the West entered the war. September the 17th, 1939. The Red Star marches. It wasn't the West that entered the fight, it was the East. On the 17th of September, Soviet troops crossed the eastern border of Poland. They met little resistance. What troops there had been in eastern Poland had almost been entirely withdrawn to fight the war in the West. Plans for the remaining Polish resistance depended entirely on a one-front war. It called for a withdrawal to hilly country in the southeast, near the Romanian border. The idea was to use the rough terrain as a national redoubt to continue the resistance until France and Britain truly entered the fight. And they might have done it. They had taken a beating, but they weren't beaten by any means. But with the Soviet troops marching from the east, even this position was entirely outflanked. The Polish High Command ordered what troops were left to head into Romania and take the first boats they could find to France and England. This spelled the end for organised resistance. A few pockets held out. Warsaw itself continued fighting for another 10 days until the waterworks were hit by a German bomb and it became impossible for the majority of the population to even get water. But in most places, any sort of formal resistance collapsed within the week. The invasion came as a shock to many Poles. Poland and the Soviet Union had signed a non-aggression pact in 1932. The Soviets had never officially renounced that pact. And while the Russian government claimed it was moving in to protect Slavic minorities in eastern Poland, the world knew what was really going on. Stalin, the Soviet leader, was grabbing territory while the getting was good. What most of the world didn't know was that Hitler had agreed to this. For years before the outbreak of war, the Western powers had tried to find some way to bring the Soviet Union into a defensive alliance against Germany, but were never willing to meet all of Stalin's demands. So in the summer of 1939, Nazi diplomats began to explore the possibility of a non-aggression pact with their historic enemy. By the end of August, a deal had been struck. Russia would not attack Germany. Germany would not attack Russia. They would not meddle in each other's affairs, nor would they ally themselves with the groups looking to do so. But there was a secret clause in that treaty, one which would not come out until the end of the war, a secret agreement to split Eastern Europe between Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany. A list of the free and independent nations that existed between the two countries was drawn up, and each side carved out their portions. Millions of souls were traded at the negotiating table, Millions of people had their fates, and very often their lives, determined without a say. It was a treaty that made the next four years in Poland some of the darkest of any time or place in human history. On the eve of the invasion, Hitler said to his generals, Our strength lies in our speed and our ruthlessness. Genghis Khan caused the death of millions of women and children deliberately and without any qualms. But history sees him only as a great founder of a state. I do not care what the helpless civilization of Western Europe thinks about me. I have issued orders to shoot anyone who dares utter even one word of criticism of the principle that the object of war is, not to reach some given line, but physically to destroy the enemy. That is why I have prepared, for the moment only in the East, my death's head formations, with orders to kill without pity or mercy all men, women and children of Polish descent or language. 
Only in this way can we obtain the living space we need. This very ruthlessness proved to be Germany's greatest weakness, not its greatest strength. Though that's little consolation to the five and a half million Poles murdered by Nazis over the course of their occupation. And, while the Soviet occupation was far more long-lasting, it was only less brutal in relative terms. Within months of the invasion, 22,000 Poles were marched into the woods and shot. Members of the NKVD, the Soviet secret police, rounded up anyone who might be able to form a cohesive Polish state after hostilities ended. The officer corps, the intelligentsia, business people and priests were herded together and executed to make it harder for anyone to oppose Soviet control after the war ended. Before the war was over, hundreds of thousands of Poles would die at the hands of the NKVD. Over a million more were deported to Siberia, often to be worked to death. The Polish government, though, would never surrender. Poles would form some of the most decorated units of the Royal Air Force and provide the Allies with the first clues on how to break the Enigma machine and crack German military code. And the government itself would continue on in exile, first in France, then in Britain. Not just through the end of the war, but all the way until 1990, when Soviet domination of Poland finally came to an end, and a legitimate government had been returned to Poland. But now there will be a lull, while the war swings to the west. So join us next time for The Invasion of France.